Go ahead and remain standing and grab your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Luke. It's good to see you all this morning. You all look cool. Are you, are you cool? Feeling cool? Don't get too, feeling too good about yourself. Uh, the Lord will humble you if you do. But, but uh, it is good to feel cool, isn't it? Man, what a crazy, crazy. We are such complainers. I just, it's just funny. I mean, maybe I'm the worst of you all, but it's like when it's, too cold. It's like wah, wah, when it's you know it's too hot and it's rainy and all. It's this. Anyway, we're just like the Israelites. It's kind of scary thought if you think about what happened with them. So you don't want to be marching around out in the desert for 40 years. And we are in verse one of chapter 20, Luke chapter 20, as we continue in our study through Luke's gospel. And one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes with the elders confronted them, and they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. And so they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent his slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard, but the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one they wounded and cast out and the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? And I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with another saying, this is the heir, let us kill him so that they will inherit, the inheritance will be ours. And so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, may it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builder rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And everyone who falls in that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. You may be seated. Again, to give you the context of where we are, we are now in the final week of the crucifixion. We call this the week of the passion. On Sunday, Jesus would have made his way into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey to the cheers of the throngs of people praising him, casting their coats and waving their prom branches, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a very exciting day. But no one could have ever guessed on that particular day that within five days on the Passover that Jesus is going to be tried and that he's going to be hung at the instigation of the religious leaders. But Jesus said it was for this very hour, this very purpose, 
that he had come. And he has always been aware of the timing. On a lot of occasions, we saw that Jesus tried to prepare his disciples for the fact that even though he was widely received by lots of people around the regions, that he would ultimately be rejected and suffer at the hands of men. In fact, it wasn't too many months earlier when Peter had made his good confession that Jesus took the guys aside and he said to them while they're still up in the region of Galilee, he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. He spelled it up for them. And then right after the transfiguration in Luke 9:43, he said, let these words sink into your ears for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. It says, but they did not understand this statement. It was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it and they were afraid to ask him about the statement. We saw that it was just a matter of days, maybe weeks earlier now before he went to Jericho that again in Luke 18, he took the 12 aside and said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished for he will be handed over to the Gentiles will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon, and after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise again. But again, we see that the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of the statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. Three different ways it says they just did not understand what Jesus was telling them and how he tried to prepare them. For years, though Jesus had done so many marvelous and good things in the lives of multitudes of the people throughout the regions, his adversaries, the religious leaders, had been scrutinizing him. They've been opposing him at every level. The tension, the conflict between them is only getting more intense each and every day, every step of the way. They're earnestly now plotting to put him to death. Jesus' life when you look at his life and his ministry, it was filled with controversy. It was filled with conflict, as I believe is the case for anyone who's going to truly follow after Jesus. There will be those who will oppose you, those who will have conflict with you. They will not understand you. And Jesus gives that example of that very fact that, yes, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If you're going to follow after me, you're going to find those same kind of things. But what surprises us when we go through the Gospels? It's not so much that Jesus found opposition and conflict. It is where the opposition came from. It's those whom it came from. The very ones who should have received him. The ones who knew the word of God. The ones who had read the prophets, the highly esteemed religious leaders, the teachers of the law, who were honored among men. But from the very beginning of his public ministry, Jesus found himself at odds with the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, and even the Sadducees. At this point, they are all united in one desperate plea. We've got to get rid of Jesus. We saw last week at the end of our study, it said in 1947, and he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and scribes and the leading men among the people, notice this, were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging on to every word that he said. 
So at this point, the religious leaders have had enough of Jesus, and the feelings are mutual. Jesus has had enough of them. Their resentment, their hatred of him is boiling over, but they have a big problem. The people are hanging on to every word that Jesus is saying. So their objective at this point is to find some way to publicly humiliate Jesus and shame him before the people trying to sever their loyalties. And thus we come to this intense confrontation here and this, this scene of, con, or of conflict. He says, on the days when he was teaching in the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. And they spoke, saying to him, tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? Now, Matthew shed some light that this is actually the day after he had made his entrance into the temple and cleansed it of the merchants. But it says here that Jesus, every day, we go into the temple where he would teach and he would preach to the people. But I want to give a side note here. Notice that Jesus both taught the people and he preached the gospel. Preaching is really the proclamation of the gospel, the evangelion or the good news. That's preaching as a proclamation. It's really really designated for those who are unconverted that they might be led to repentance and salvation. The preaching is very necessary, but there's also the teaching of the word, which is also necessary, but it's geared more for those who already believe so that they might grow, so they might mature and the, and the knowledge of the word and produce the fruit of faith. Now we see here that Jesus both taught and he preached because they were both needed. Now this is important, really, I think, to understand because a lot of churches, what they do is they accentuate the preaching at the expense of the teaching or the teaching at the, extent, at the expense of the teaching. And as a result, people often hear messages of salvation over and over and over again. They'll hear that they need the Holy Spirit over and over again, but they lack the teaching that which they can grow in the knowledge of God's word. That's why kind of one of our key verses here is found at Calvary is found in Ephesians 4.11. It says, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Notice this, why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of what? The body of Christ until we all attain unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God and mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, he says, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by his craftiness and deceitful scheming. That's really why we really believe here that, that, you know, at Calvary, we want the word to be a place we proclaim the gospel as well, but we want it to be a place where people can grow in the word of God. We think that, that church should really be a Bible school. You know, we just, when I was a kid, it's like, you know, if you're really serious about the Lord, someday you'll go to Bible school and you'll learn the Bible. Now, we think if you're serious about the Lord, you'll learn the Bible. And that's why you're here, Lord willing. That's why you're here this morning. But as we continue on here, notice that Luke tells us that as while Jesus is teaching and he is preaching the people in the temple that he's approached and he's confronted by these head honchos. Here are the main men. Here's the chief priest, the scribes, the elders, and they come to Jesus to question him about his authority. Now, they don't come to him as seeking honest answers, 
but they're really looking for excuses to thwart his authority in the eyes of the people. And so they ask him quite simply, you know, tell us by what authority you're doing these things or who is the one who gave you this authority? So you wonder, well, what things are they kind of addressing here? What are these things that you're so worked up about? Well, in the media context, we've seen uh, their, their authority that Jesus exhibited when he entered into Jerusalem on the back of the cult with all the people praising him and shouting and cheering, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And all that we saw was a fulfillment of Psalms 118, a messianic psalm. And they were so offended by Jesus receiving their praises, they asked Jesus to shut the people up. But Jesus says to them, listen, even if you could silence the people, even the rocks themselves would cry out. This was a joyous day. But they also were deeply offended and challenged by his authority that he exhibited when he entered the temple with, and with holy zeal, and he violently overturns their tables. He chases out the merchants and the money changers, and then he says, you know, my house shall be called the house of prayer. You have made it a den of thieves. What really is he's doing, he's saying, these ones, these merchants were under the authority of the religious leaders who had turned or allowed the temple to be abused and turn into a den of thieves. But from the very beginning of his ministry, they are offended by his authority. We learn very early in Jesus' ministry, in Luke 4.32, as Jesus began to teach, it says they were amazed at his teaching. Not, these are the people, not the religious leaders, for his message was with authority. In other words, in contrast to the religious leaders, Jesus spoke the word of God like he meant it. Like it really said a message to the people, unlike the wishy-washy religious leaders who would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi Shemay says this, and Elal says this, and they'd go on and never really give anyone an answer. Well, Jesus speaks the word of God very directly. And the people are saying, we've not really seen this before. Somebody who declares the word with such authority. And Luke 40, 36, it says, a man, amazement came upon them all. Again, these are the people. And they began talking with one another, what is this message? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. No doubt, man, they question, the Pharisees did, and the Sadducees, all of them, his authority to do the miracles. You know, that he had authority to heal the sick, to cast out demons. They questioned his authority that they had heard by which he had stilled the seas and calmed the waves and how he even uh, controlled the wind. And at this point, they're deeply offended that he has declared authority even to forgive. You know, we saw in that scene with the paralytic, they said, well, how do you have the right to forgive? Well, Jesus says so that you may know that Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. So the issue that they have with Jesus is his authority. They're questioning by what? You know, to you and I reading the Gospels, when you go through and we read them, you know, the authority of Jesus to do these things for us is really a no-brainer. I mean, well, who else would give you the authority? Who else has power to do all these things? We would look at it and instantly know there's something supernatural going on here. This has to be God. Who else can give sight to the blind and raise up the paralytics? I mean, who else has power to do these things? So an unbelief in this unwill, stubborn 
defiance. The religious leaders question his authority. Jesus, who died and put you in charge? Who in the world do you think you are? What are your degrees? What school did you go to? Who was it you trained under? And how many years? And what titles have you earned for yourself? And who ordained you? I mean, who gives you the right? You act like you own this place. Well, he does. <laughs> and again, it needs to be stressed here, it is never for lack of evidence the religious leaders refuse to believe and see Jesus as their promised Messiah. It's not evidence at all. No, it's not lack of evidence. It's the condition of their own self-righteous, proud, egocentric hearts that have blinded them to the obvious. The real problem with the religious leaders was that the authority of Jesus really calls into question their authority over the people. Jesus is reigning on their parade. He's been reigning on their parade for three years. They are losing their grip, their control over the people. At the same time, Jesus has publicly exposed their hypocrisy, their sin-filled defiance of the truth of God's word, insinuating that they too, even they, the religious leaders, were sinners and that they needed to repent. No, the only explanation the religious leaders had ever come up with to satisfy themselves is that Jesus did have authority, but it must be the authority of Satan, which really leads into really blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But in verse 3, Jesus answered and said to them, and I love this, he said, I will also ask you a question and you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Now, as typical of Jesus, he would answer questions with a question rather than coming back to them. And he says, you know, he brings up John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? He says, well, you tell me, was, he, was his baptism ordained by God or was it the work of men? Now, when Jesus brings up John the Baptist, he triggers a nerve. You see, they really didn't have very good feelings about John the Baptist either. In fact, they hated him, and they despised him before they despised Jesus. Now, at this point, to their relief, John the Baptist has already been put to death by Herod, but his legacy is still living on. We talked about this beginning of Luke. John the Baptist is a key player in the gospel accounts. Why? Not just because he's a prophet who comes after 400 years of silence, but he is the last of the Old Testament prophets. But even more than that, he himself is a fulfillment of prophecy. He was a, prophesy, a prophesied prophet. He was the one who was sent to prepare the way for Messiah when he comes. But the religious leaders had rejected John and his baptism long before they reject Jesus and his ministry, and all for the same reasons. You see, John also had a way of dealing with the religious leaders. He says in Matthew 3, 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. I mean, this is the kind of welcome they got from John. So there is no love loss they have. And it was John, if you remember, who not only baptized Jesus, but he prophesied of the one coming after him. As for me, he says, I baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not fit even to remove his sandals, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
And it's John the Baptist who identifies Jesus when he shows up on this scene and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That John. Now, the problem for the religious leaders here is that they knew that the majority of people believed wholeheartedly that John had been indeed been a prophet of God, which puts the religious leaders into a dilemma with their question. Now, keep in mind, this, confu- this confrontation all takes place in front of all of the people with hopes to diminish Jesus, but this is all backfiring pretty big time for them. And so verse 5 says, they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So this is the religious leaders in their dilemma. If they answer that John the Baptist was from heaven, as they know the people believed that he was, then Jesus would have used that as an argument to say, well, why in the world didn't you believe him when he testified of me? On the other hand, if they answer the question that John's baptism was not from heaven, they feared being stoned by the people because they knew the people all believed that John was. And here is the root problem you see with the religious leaders, and there's something to learn here yourselves. They had a greater fear of men than they did of God. They had a greater fear. They sought the honor of men over the honor of God. And can I say to you, there's a lot of people in ministry today that have a greater fear of men than they do of God, and they seek to honor the honor of men. It's far more important to them than it is having the honor of God. What a tragic thing. When you go back to the story of King Saul, you know that when Samuel comes to Saul and says, listen, God has rejected you as the king of Israel. You know what he says? Well, okay, just I want you to honor me before the people. I just want you to honor me. You see, he cares more about the honor of people than he does even of God. And that's no wonder that God would reject him as the king over his people. Because any time you care more about what people think than you do what God does, you're in deep trouble spiritually. And I hope you all take that to heart. This is something that we have to say, I want to honor God. And I care more about his honor than I do your honor. And it's something the Lord has to check me with even as I teach. Who are you there to please today? Are you there to please the people? Or are you there to honor the Lord? And I have to honestly just say, sometimes I just have to wrestle through and say, Lord, I don't want to honor, I don't want to do any of this for the sake of the people. I want to do this for your sake. And it's a very, you need to pray for pastors, no matter where they are. Because it's easy to get sidetracked and seek the honor of people more than you do the honor of God. Verse 7, so they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Because they fear men, notice what they do. They claim this passive agnostic neutrality. It's like, we just don't know. We just don't know for sure. And true of his word, because they gave Jesus not an answer, Jesus doesn't give them an answer to their question. In essence, what he's done is Jesus has forced these religious leaders to face the fact that they are not at all interested in the truth about either John or himself. All they are doing is looking for excuses to justify their hatred 
and their unbelief of Jesus. And there's a lot of people like that today. They claim that they're seekers of truth, but in reality, they're merely looking for excuses to justify their own sinfulness and rejection of Christ. They simply don't want to change. And when you don't want to change, you shut it out. And these are the games that people play. So to cap off this open confrontation with the religious leaders, Jesus speaks a parable in the hearing of the people that is directed toward the religious leader. And again, I want to read the parable, and we're going to talk through it. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to the vine growers, went on a journey for a long time, and at the harvest he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. And the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they responded to one another saying, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, may it never be. Now, Jesus here uses a parable, and in it, he talks about a vineyard. Now, you wouldn't know this as being Gentiles, mostly New Testament believers. But for a Jew, there's no mistaking where this is coming from. The imagery of the vineyard comes from Scripture itself. It was the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea. They had all used the imagery of the vineyard in reference to the nation Israel. But perhaps the most potent and stinging of them all was a parable that was given by Isaiah the prophet 750 years earlier with reference to what was going to take place in the future with Israel. But listen to what Isaiah writes, the Lord, of course, speaking through him. And Isaiah 5, let me sing a song now, my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard of a fertile hill. And he dug it around, all around, and he removed the stones, and he planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and then he expected it to produce good grapes. But it produced only worthless ones. Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected to produce good fruit, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to the vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down the wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it to waste. I will not, I will not, it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. And I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Every Jew knew this parable. It was historic 
There's so much you could explain, and literally, in it, you can see God, simply he's the owner of the vineyard, he's the planter of the vineyard, he's the one who fertilizes the vineyard, he gives it everything that it possibly needs for growth, for producing good fruit, he gives to Israel the law and the prophets. I mean, he puts a wall around it for its protection. He, he puts a wine vat, he appoints servants to attend his vineyard, the men of Judah, who neither tended the vineyard nor care for the produce. And he left the vineyard of God worthless and fruitless. And as a consequence of their fruitlessness, he rips the vineyard out and removes its protection. He removes his hand of provision. He stops the rain and he allows that vineyard to be torn up. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Now, when Isaiah spoke those words, he was speaking prophetically about what was going to take place and what did take place in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came in to Judah, went to Jerusalem. They raised the temple and they raised the walls. They tore the whole city down. It was prophetic. But Jesus comes back here in this parable. He's saying it's going to happen again. The landowner, again, is God. He gives Israel. Israel is the vineyard, and he rents it out to the tenants, the spiritual leaders, of whom he expects them of honest labor that they would tend his vineyard. He goes off on a long journey, and when he returns, or he sends the time of harvest, he sends a servant in to inspect, clearly a reference to a prophet. But they find him, and they beat him, and they send him off empty-handed. The landowner sends another servant. They also beat him and send him off empty-handed. He sends a third. They beat him and send him off empty-handed. Finally, he says to himself, I know what I'll do. I'm going to send my own beloved son, and when I send him, they will listen to him. They will respect him. But when the tenants, the religious leaders of the vineyard, saw the son coming on their way, they reasoned to one another, this is the year let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. This is what they're thinking. Let us do away with him so that we can claim everything for ourselves. Jesus right there nails the motivation of the religious leaders. So they threw him out and they killed him. Now this is prophetically Jesus giving this of what's going to take place in just four days. Because they will take Jesus... On the Passover, they will take him outside of the city, and there they will crucify him. In this prediction, Jesus is saying, this is what you are doing and what you're going to accomplish. Then he says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? In another prophetic, prophetic preview, he says, he will come and he will destroy the vine growers, the religious leaders, a clear reference to the destruction of the temple, the scattering of the Jews that did occur in A.D. 70, and the people were scattered for the next 1,900 years until they returned back to their home, and he will give the vineyard to others. What's he talking about? Well, to the Gentiles. That what was intended for the Jews will now go to the Gentiles, and they will bear fruit of it. And as you go through the book of Acts, that's exactly what you see. You see the Holy Spirit coming down and moving and bearing the fruit. And by the way, I pray he's still doing it today. And I pray he's still doing it in this place. Do you guys remember a few weeks ago when we were going through Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem? We saw that when he came to the Mount of Olives in the back of that donkey, 
that he looked out across the, the Kidron Valley there and he looked at the city of Jerusalem and there he saw the temple and it says he wept. And the meaning of that weeping there is much more than he simply shed a couple of tears. It was an inward sob. He wept. Matthew says this was his saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under the wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Which by the way is coming sometime real soon. When they, verse 16, the religious leaders heard it, the parable, they said, may it never be. This was the insult of all insults. They were mortified at the suggestion. This could never happen. But Matthew's gospel tells us that they knew immediately that Jesus had spoke the parable against them. And verse 17 Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builder rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Jesus now confronts again the Pharisees and the scribes, and he says, I want you to give me the meaning of that passage in Psalm 118. By the way, the same passage that was quoted when Jesus made his entrance into Jerusalem I want you to tell me the meaning of the cornerstone. Psalm 118, verse 22 through 26, the stone which the builders rejected has become a chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And to this very passage, he looks at them and he says, I want you to tell me, what is the meaning of the cornerstone that the builders rejected? You see, the cornerstone was designed in antiquity as a stone used to really, uh, in building corner, bearing the weight of two stresses on two walls. And you really could say in this, you could call it maybe the law and the prophets, the very thing they held to. It would have functioned somewhat like a keystone or a capstone in an arch or another architectural form, but it was a stone, this stone, that is essential for the whole structure. What you do with this piece or this cornerstone affects the whole building. You can't take the stone away without effect. Now, Jesus himself here, of course, is the chief cornerstone. Apart from him, it all crumbles. It all falls apart. The law, the prophets, they all look to Jesus. Jesus, rejected by the builders, is the chief cornerstone. He is the essential truth that they're denying. And apart from him, there is no hope. Verse 18, everyone who falls in that stone will be broken to pieces. But whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Anyone who comes to Jesus and falls on him is going to be broken of their pride and of their self-will. And everyone who refuses 
will stumble over him and be crushed by him in judgment. The parable of the vineyard is rooted, really, and I want you to see this. It's rooted in God's love. It's God loved. It's God who loved this people. And it's the people, it's a, it's a tragic love story of the people who reject the love of God. <laughs> the religious leaders had come to Jesus in their pride. They had already rejected him in their hearts so that they could set him on a course of his death, not knowing that very same day they're setting themselves on the course of their own judgment. But don't miss something really important here. When you look at this, Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone, he's the key to everything. He's the key to everything. He's the key to it all. And when you think of this parable of the vineyard, think of what Jesus now says in John 15, where he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it will bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit in and of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. And he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them, and they cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father, he says, is glorified in this. Notice this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. It's the love of God through the Son, Jesus, the key to everything, people. It's the key for you, for your fruitfulness. What will God do with you? Jesus is the vine. We're the branches. Are you really taking it in? Are you abiding in the vine? You see, God is looking for this fruit. It's what he was looking for in his people Israel. But it's the fruit he looks for. And one day he will see it in his people Israel. But now it's in spreading throughout the world the fruit that God is looking for, but it's only found in Jesus. Let me ask you today, are you playing the part of the religious leaders? In unbelief, are you looking for excuses to hold on to your sin and unbelief? Just some way so you don't have to answer anyone? Rejecting the authority of God, or have you entrusted yourself to the authority of Jesus? because he is divine. 
And it's his intent that you and I, as his disciples, bear good fruit and so prove to be his disciples. And that right there is the love of God and the grace of God. Because what we deserve is judgment. But in his grace, he offers forgiveness by what's going to take place on that Friday when they kill him. That shed blood is going to be the very essence of what will give us life. Such a beautiful thing. Grab a hold of Jesus. Make him the object of your affection. Love him. Learn to love him. Learn how much he loves you so that you would bear much fruit. And that's so important because this world is so lost. Father, we thank you. We thank you today, Lord. We just praise you that you're here with us. Father, we would just pray even now, Lord, that our hearts as we're at the close of our time together here, Lord, that we would just be stilled before you and our hearts and minds would be thoughtful of you. And Lord, we hear these words. We see God, the truths that you lay out. Jesus, you claimed it. You're the key to it all. And today, Lord, I pray that even our concerns about the world, Lord, would just be set aside and that for just these moments, Lord, we could worship you and really, truly worship you from the heart. Lord, today that we would tell you that we love you and it means more than just singing a song. It's us coming to you and saying, Jesus, you do have authority and you have authority over my life. Same time, God, I, I pray that there's anyone here this morning who is playing the part of the religious leader, still looking for excuses to deny you. That today, God, that you would stir their hearts that they might come to believe. You are indeed the Christ, the promised one of God, the promised one of Israel, the savior of the world. And that today, Lord, there is forgiveness of sin that is found only in the name of Jesus. Jesus.